0: This is episode 118 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Today's articles are Prepping Guns, 4 Lessons to Learn from My Expensive Mistakes 10 Tips for Preppers with a Chronic Illness or Disability And Are Your Local First Responders Ready for an EMP? Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily aggregator of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, if you are new to the podcast, I'd like to welcome you to episode 118. And uh, just like I I say always in the intro, uh, I do read articles. These are audible versions of articles that I have posted on PrepperWebsite.com. So uh, there's two, two websites, Prepper Website and The Prepper Website Podcast, and uh, I did that on purpose because Prepper Website, the theme is a Drudge Report looking theme, and it really is does not work well for any other thing other than uh, looking like the Drudge Report, and so uh, when I've done other websites, I've needed to kind of go on to another theme and, and uh, done it that way. And uh, you know, kinda kinda make it look a little bit nicer for those people that are that are coming just because I know the the other the judge report theme just won't work for a lot of text and and things like that. So but I I do want to point out that if you are new to preparedness and maybe you you know you've hit us on iTunes or Stitcher or one of the other podcasting networks, um and you're you're new to preparedness and you're looking for more preparedness content, we link to about eight to twelve uh, articles, sometimes more every single evening on PrepperWebsite.com. Uh, there's no way I can get to them all, uh, but uh, try to try to get to the very best of the best. And then let you know that what we put on PrepperWebsite, those are really good too. So, I mean, we're scanning a bunch of websites, uh, a bunch of feeds, and uh, only putting the best up there. So we don't just link the feeds and, and whatever comes up, comes up. Uh, we're picking and choosing, and we're aggregating the best information for you. So, if you're interested in preparedness, make sure you go over to prepperwebsite.com and uh, get, you know check out our uh, our links. So I, like I said, it's a daily update, every single day. All right, so our first article comes to us from Beans, Bullets, Bandages, and You, and uh, like I said, uh, the article is entitled "Prepping Guns: for Lessons to Learn from My Expensive Mistakes." And I think this is a good article, especially if you are looking into some firearms. Uh, maybe you have one, or uh, you're thinking about getting one, and uh, you're kind of getting into the the whole mix firearms. If you're not, if you don't know what you're doing, you know, can can kind of get a little expensive if you don't do your research. But you know, the good thing is that we can learn from other people's mistakes, and so this is a, a good article to do that from. It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Admit that you made a mistake, especially to do so in public. I've made a lot of them over the years, as have we all, and some of those mistakes have been quite expensive. When it comes to firearms, every company makes the occasional lemon that doesn't operate as intended or that has problems. Having said that, some companies simply make better guns than others. In addition, there may be absolutely nothing wrong with the gun, but from a prepping standpoint, its purchase is still a mistake. Let me share why. Here's a list of four things I have done wrong over the last 15 years when buying a prepper gun samples to follow. Number one, I bought a gun of a good and popular brand even though this particular model had bad reliability reviews early in its release. I purchased it because later models had the issue fixed. Number two, I bought a gun from a company that I had a bad experience with previously. Number three, I bought a gun that eight expensive ammo quickly instead of the same gun in an affordable caliber and number 4 i bought a gun that i didn't like the ergonomics of thinking of thinking it's okay i will get used to it each of these mistakes ended up with me being unhappy with my purchase and every gun listed here except one i have gotten rid of the gun from mistake 1 the sig sawyer 556 xir i purchased a sig sawyer ff I'm oh, sorry, a 5.56 XIR rifle in 762 but 39 even though the rifle had a lot of early teething pains. Early production models were notorious for jamming, but Sig figured out the problem with the rifle and the later production guns like mine worked fine. The problem? The gun had such a bad reputation that sales were poor and they had discontinued, discontinued it and parts availability is already limited. You know you are in trouble on a gun when they remove all references to it from their website within a year of your purchase. My thought was I wanted a reliable, accurate 762 by 39 from a top manufacturer to be my main self-defense gun. Well, now I have a gun and can't buy spare parts kits for it even though it's only been out of production for a year. Since this is a $1600 gun, this is an ouch situation. This is the one gun I still own. I'm debating whether to keep it and try to find parts or to sell it and cut my losses. It's a great gun. Mine didn't have the defective gas rod that plagued the earlier production models and goes bang every time. Time will tell. The gun from mistake number two, the Chiapa Little Badger 22. There's really no excuse for me on this one. After the horrible experience I had with Chiapa guns, you would think that after this experience I had with a gun from Chiapa, click me, I would have avoided further firearms from them. Nope, I was dumb. So there's, uh, there's links here that you're going to want to go check out. And he reviews uh, firearms and all those kinds of things. talks about his uh, you know, specific uh, uh, experience on, on some of these links. I saw this little single shot survival rifle in a local gun shop. It was cheap and I had some time to kill, so I bought it to be a bug out bag gun. I got the gun home, opened the box, and found that the right sight had fallen off of the gun. It's held on by a couple of tiny screws which were stripped out at the factory. So back to LGS, which, by the way, is 25 miles from me, to get it repaired. I had to ship it off at my expense to the factory repair facility. And two two months later, they shipped it back to my dealer. I drove up there, picked it up, went out, and started shooting it when this happened. And there is a video of him uh, firing this rifle and showing what's going on. Of course, the factory's answers: it's broke, ship it back at your expense, and we'll fix it for you again. I junked it. The gun for mistake number three: a Henry, a Henry 22 Magnum lever gun. Unlike the Chiapa, which was—and I hope I'm saying that right—I'm not even familiar with that gun. I've never seen that, uh, that Chiapa before. Anyway, unlike the Chiapa which was broken from the start and has never been fully functional. There was absolutely nothing whatever wrong with the Henry. It was a pretty gun with sharp looking Missouri walnut stocks. The gun functioned flawlessly. It was dead on accurate and everything about it was great except it did the exact same job as a Henry 22 non-Magnum. And the non-Magnum 22 long rifle LNS rounds are a fraction of the price of the Magnum rounds. The only problem with the gun was it shot much more expensive ammo than, it nearly, than its nearly identical brother that I still own. I ended up shooting the non-Magnum a lot while the Magnum sat there collecting dust. Eventually I traded the Magnum off. The gun for mistake number 4, a kel PF9. It's not that I found the PF9 a bad gun. In fact, here's a review I did of it earlier. The problem, as I stated in the review, is that my thumb hit the magazine eject button every time I fire the gun, causing the magazine to drop free and turning my semi-auto CCW into a single shot. Sadly, I noticed this in the gun shop when I was buying the gun and I thought to myself that I would simply adjust my grip to compensate for the problem. Wrong. For other people, this isn't a problem and they love their PF9s. It just didn't work for me and I should have been... I should have not been in denial in the gun shop and looked elsewhere. The bottom line, four purchases, four mistakes, four sets of regrets. I hope something I shared here may prevent you from making one or more of the same mistakes I made. All right, so um, just a couple of thoughts here. I was thinking uh, as I was reading, you know, that number one, that SIG 556, you know, maybe uh in the future they might re-release that rifle just under a different name and maybe kind of change it up a little bit i don't know uh if it you know started working right and everything was working that's possible they might not even want to mess with it um but uh you know that is that is a you know a problem there um I wonder if you could, uh, you know, sell that gun at a gun, sh- you know, at a gun show if if that's something that you want to do. But again, he's saying that he's he's gonna kind of keep it. Time will tell, and uh, I'm sure he's contacted Sig Sawyer to see if they have parts that, you know, that he can get. Um, and then on the um, on the uh, the other little one, the Magnum, I I knew um, the police officer we used to do at my campus. We used to do the Dare program, where it was the you know the drug, the drug and alcohol prevention program for kids in fifth grade, and uh, she would come out and do that every year for us, and uh, we would have a little bit of time to talk, and she talked about having that you know a 22 Magnum, uh, and having problems finding ammo. I did I did see some at one point at a gun store, and I was able to let her know. I think she did go pick that up, but um, you know that is one of the the issues that you have there. Um, you know, when you go buy your firearm, do a lot of research. Um, don't get caught up in, hey, I want the, the nice, shiny little thing. Go go do some research and, and stick with something that is, you know, uh, unfortunately, I, I understand what he's saying where he went with the Sig Sawyer because it's a reputable company. It's been around a long time. They make good guns. It Just, you know, the rifle itself uh you know uh, got a bad reputation but you know you probably want to go with something especially if it's going to be your first gun if it's going to be something that you are going to rely on and you want to make sure that you're able to make it go bang and and you can use it at the range and you know all the things that you want to use it for whatever it is you know you usually can't go wrong with a glock right um but you know you're going to find multiple parts out there uh, but you again, you know, like you said, go to the go to the 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 gun uh, shop and kind of feel them and make sure that they feel right in your hands. Um, and if you can, go to a gun range that will allow you to shoot them. I I know a lot of women just because I've dealt with because I I worked in elementary, a lot of women who purchased uh, who got their uh, you know concealed handgun license. And, uh, well, back when it was concealed handgun in, in, in Texas. Uh, and they went to the, to the store and they got the little 380s, uh, because it felt, it fit right in their hand and it was, you know, it was nice and small and shiny and all that kind of junk. And they went to the range and shot it a couple of times and it was just too much, you know, too much recoil. It freaked them out and it just, it didn't work for them. So, you know, they're, they're not gonna use it. Um, so, you know, the best thing to do is if you could go to a, to a range and call around and even if it means you travel a little bit and ask them if they have several guns that you can choose to, to shoot and uh, you know, see which one feels right. Uh, That's always the best thing, especially if you are um, getting ready to, or you know, if you have a friend who maybe has one, has a couple and you ask them to take you out shooting Um, especially if it's your first one or you know, you're looking to buy and you know, money is uh, you know, some people money's no no object right and so they can just go trade guns they buy guns shoot them a little bit trade them and you know you have those people that do that but uh, for most of us it's kind of like hey you know this is going to be an important purchase so i need to do my research i need to make sure that it works i need to make sure that i'm not going to have any issues with it so some good advice there and, uh, you know, again, just do your research there on it. Uh, there's tons of information on uh, the Internet, and you're going to hear all kinds of stuff. Uh, I won't even get into all that kind of stuff, all the forums and stuff that can, will go crazy. The next article comes to us from TheOrganicPrepper.ca, um, and uh, that CA for stands for Canada. Hey, and I just want to do a quick shout out to all my Canadian friends. I uh, got a lot of you listening, man. I, I appreciate that. Uh, and you know, as I'm as I'm thinking about that, Brian over at uh, the Prepper Website Group, a More Self Reliant Life Facebook Group, um, he posted there is um, there is I guess a little town, a little island in Canada, but you know, like northeast, uh, I want to say Ontario, around around there, I guess I think um, if I'm not mistaken that. Uh, but anyway, so they they their business is doing well, but they don't have people to uh, to live up there. So they are uh, they will give you a job, and if you are you know you, you're good, and they can't promise you a lot of money. I mean, you know, you're not going to make a whole lot of money, but uh, you they promise you a job and then if you I guess a, a place to live uh, you know some some acres like two or three acres but then if you wind up staying there three years you get to keep the land and then all you got to do is pay for the transfer of the title and all that kind of stuff and so uh, they I think uh, I went to their that fa- I mean that was such an interesting article I went to go check that out and then I went to their Facebook page of uh, the company that was doing this and and uh, I think they had already hired like two families and they were looking to do two more and uh, the families that they hired were from canada but i mean i think they would be open to american americans going over there but i thought that was interesting so uh that's not too far down if you scroll down on the facebook group uh you know something interesting but uh daisy bought this and, and started her website when she lived in canada back in the day so that's why it's the dot ca uh there for you so if you're if you're curious on that but this is an important topic and I think um, one of the reasons why, I guess, you don't hear too much about it. I, I believe that we actually need more. I mean, I wrote an article on, you know, creating your own prepper website and, and things like that. And I really do believe as the population ages, I and mean, we have the baby boomer generation is aging, they do have disabilities, they do have illnesses, they they do care about preparedness, Um but they're not the the type that you see maybe, you know, like a muscle head, uh, muscle bound and, you know, carrying, you know, a big old pack and, you know, AR-15 and trekking through the woods type stuff. I mean, you know, they're they're concerned about all the other, you know, a lot of the times they they're, they're, uh, they're, preparing on limited income and uh, but they they want to prepare as well and they want to be a part of a group and they want to do i mean they they see the need for it right Um, a lot of their parents went through the great depression and you know they they uh, have stories and uh, actual you know uh, experience where, where parents uh, you know, never never gave up their frugality after going through the depression because they were afraid of going through it again. So they have a lot to offer, but they're dealing with illnesses, they're dealing with disabilities, and that's just one segment. There's a lot of other people out there who who are preppers who have kids who are disabled or or w- whatever. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't have to be old or you know, it doesn't have to be young. There's just people out there that are facing illnesses and and how do you prepare? with that. And so I'm, I wanted to read this article. Um, I, I think that it would apply almost to everyone because I think everyone is going to have someone at some point uh, you know, be, be in this situation. So I hope you uh, get some value from it. Again, 10 uh, tips for preppers with a chronic illness or disability. These days, it's increasingly common to have a chronic illness or disability. But that doesn't mean that you can't be prepared. We live in a toxic society in a land of chronic illness. Whether you blame this on the environment, chemicals, and everything we ingest and inhale, or some other facet of American life, more and more people are becoming seriously ill for a long period of time. As I wrote recently, quote, 133 million Americans are dealing with a chronic illness right now. That is a full 40% of the population of our country. By 2020, that number is expected to skyrocket to 157 million. With numbers like that, some of these people are bound to be preppers. People are dealing with physical disabilities, arthritis, endometriosis, asthma, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, Hashimoto's uh, uh, triphoditis, lupus, Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes, adrenal fatigue, mental health issues, hypertension, autoimmune disorders. Of course, this isn't a complete list, it's a drop in the bucket when you look at the declining health of Americans. Add to this, sometimes declining mobility is just a part of getting older. With all of the talk in the niche about being fit, bugging out on foot, camping, and surviving, when you have to do everything by hand, that has to be pretty daunting for anyone coping with a chronic illness or disability. As someone who has been dealing with a debilitating condition for several years, I can completely attest to how discouraging it feels when you think about all of the things that you can no longer do. But here's the thing that I learned. While you may not be able to do everything you like to, you can still be an incredibly valuable asset to your community. You can still manage disaster with aplomb. You can raise a garden, preserve food, and learn skills. You just may have to do these things a little differently than other folk who don't have the same health challenges. It is a brutal reality that there are some situations in which those who have infirmities truly won't survive. But in a situation so dire, many people who are perfectly fit and healthy will also perish. You can't really sit around dwelling on this, but you know that it is a basic premise of survivalism. Not everyone is going to make it. There is an element of luck involved. For example, if you are at ground zero of a nuclear blast, it doesn't matter if you went to the gym six days a week for the last ten years and ate a diet of rice, bran, lean meat, and broccoli. You're toast. But most certain, most situations you'll find yourself in are not nuclear ground zero situations. One thing I have written about time and time again is that no one has an absolutely perfect setup. Just like no location is without its drawbacks, no person is either. Not everyone is going to be a warrior, a carpenter, an engineer, an herbal expert, and a farmer. Not everyone has the capability to live off the land. Actually, a lot fewer of us have that capability than are willing to admit it, but I digress. No matter who you are, you have to work within your own limitations. You must improve what you can and improvise what you can't. 10 Tips for Preppers with a Chronic Illness or Disability The following tips are written with people who have a chronic illness or disability in mind, but really they apply to everyone on some sliding scale. Number 1. Be Medically Prepared If you are taking medications or require any type of special supplies or equipment, you must be somewhat ahead of this. Even a low-level crisis like a winter storm can turn into something major if you run out of essential medical supplies. Ask your physician to prescribe your medication several months at a time and get your refills a month earlier. You can cite the fact that it's way cheaper to buy it in bigger quantities, and it is because you will save money on the pharmacy fee this way. Not having essential medications and supplies on hand means that someone you care about may have to put themselves at risk to acquire more for you in a situation in which they'd be safer staying at home. It means that you may require medical intervention when none is available. It's so much easier to just stock up ahead of time. I keep an entire year's worth of thyroid medication on hand for this very reason. When my dosage was changed, I went ahead and continued to fill my previous lower prescription to add to my stockpile. Number 2. Understand Your Condition Most people who deal with a chronic illness already know that you have to become your own physician to some degree, particularly when it's a lesser understood condition. It is vital that you understand your condition. You need to know danger signs to look for, behavioral modifications that can help you, ways to relieve symptoms without delving into your pharmaceuticals, and dietary changes that can help control your symptoms. Likewise, you need to understand the behaviors and activities that worsen your conditions and avoid them if possible. Stock up on the things that will make you more comfortable, and keep reference information at hand in a hard copy format. Number 3. Stick as close to your regular diet as you can. When stocking up food for an emergency, you'll want to focus on the foods that make you feel better. If you control some of your symptoms with diet, an emergency is not the time to go eating things that will increase your inflammation or cause digestive issues. If you generally eat a low-carb diet, carbohydrate diet to manage your condition, for example, you'll want to avoid the standard bucket of rice and pasta-based meals. They'll make you sick in a very short order. On the other hand, if you're a vegan, suddenly gnawing on jerky or creamy soups won't make you feel well either. This really goes back to the prepper adage, eat what you store and store what you eat. Number 4. Make accommodations for your condition just because you can't do things the way everyone else does doesn't mean you can't do them. The following accommodations may work for you or they may get you your creative juices flowing. Have raised bed gardens built to a comfortable height. Raised bed gardens reduce the need to kneel and bend. If you are in a wheelchair, make sure there is enough space between the bed to maneuver and that the surface is smooth and maintained. Get a gardening stool with handles to provide support when getting up and down. I have this one. These can be used in many more places than just the garden. When repackaging your food, use smaller containers. If you are having pain, mobility issues, or strength issues, use one gallon buckets instead of five gallon buckets. Do the same with stored water. You won't want to try managing five gallon water jugs, so go with one gallon jugs instead. If you can't walk or can't walk long distances, figure out how you could make a trek if necessary. Can you ride a bicycle? Do you need a wheelchair? Would a walker or cane be helpful in those situations? Use a reacher grabber to get things off high shelves instead of climbing around on stools and chairs. You don't want to risk getting injured on top of everything else. Use aids like jar openers and bucket openers if you have reduced strength. Pick these things up now to make your life easier. Make your home user friendlier with grab handles and other mobility aids. Number five, get some exercise if you can. With nearly all health conditions, you can perform some moderate exercise modified for your needs. In an emergency, the better your fitness level is, the better off you'll be. If you are able, walk daily. If you can't, walk. Perform some exercise at home that will increase your strength, cardiovascular system, and mobility. Number six, consider what happened to many wheelchair-bound and elderly people When the the levee broke after Hurricane Katrina, they drowned because they did not have a plan in place. This didn't have to happen. If you have decreased mobility for any reason, now is the time to make a plan. Bugging in should nearly always be your plan A, but if the situation necessitates a plan B, how will you bug out? This is going to be different for every single person, but it's essential to figure it out before an epic disaster gives you 5 minutes to be out the door. Number 7. Shop online. Online shopping made the world a whole lot bigger for people with chronic illness or disability. If you have a mobility or fatigue issue, going out for a long day of stock up shopping probably sounds like torture to you. Start making your purchases online and get them delivered to your door. You can often find deals or better deals on the web than you can in your own area, which makes online shopping an even bigger win but even grocery stores and pharmacies now deliver in many places, which can be a bonus when you are making large, larger purchases because you don't have to get them in, in from your, the car. You can weigh this against any concerns about OPSEC and privacy, but so many people shop online these days that the mailman won't think much about a few Amazon packages here and there. Break up your purchases instead of getting 50 boxes delivered in the span of a week, and it will not even be notable to your delivery person. Number eight, focus on knowledge and skills. So maybe you won't be out there working in a field after some apocalyptic event, but you can still be a valuable member of a group. What kind of knowledge and skills do you have or can you learn that will help others? Not only will this be helpful to your family, but often can be bartered to others in exchange for the things you are not able to do. Here are a few examples. Herbalism, foraging, food preservation, sewing, mending, medical knowledge, get as much training as possible, repairing old-fashioned skills, how did people complete everyday tasks before the days of convenience and electricity? Your knowledge and abilities in this area can be invaluable. you know and just I want to add to that just bouncing off the article that we just read. if you are a gunsmith, I mean you think about that you know you have a little workshop, you have a little bench. Uh, even if you're in a wheelchair, you're able to roll up to it and you have a bench with your supplies and you're able to do whatever you need to do. I mean, yeah, you might not be able to to go out and shoot it or whatever, but you can work on it. So, uh, you know, that, that might be something that would definitely be, uh, I would think would be valuable. Sharpening knives and things like that would be, um, or, or any kind of cutting utensil would be, uh, important in the SHTF. Uh, especially if you, you knew how to do, um, sharpening of uh you know various things just not your you know your typical knife all right number nine find a community this isn't always easy or possible but if you can at all find a like-minded community of people who are on the same page with you maybe this will be your family or it could be your friends and neighbors regardless it's hard to survive alone even if you are in the best of health if you have limitations the aid of other people will be essential just make sure you have something to offer them in return, whether it's supplies or knowledge. Number 10: be prepared to protect yourself. As horrible as this sounds, some people will see your disability or frail health and consider you an easy target. We can't always wait for 9/ to rescue or 911, I'm sorry, to rescue us, so it's imperative that you be able to rescue yourself. In my opinion, a firearm is the best way to do this. If you don't know how to shoot, find a gun range that is accessible for you and work with an instructor who can help you make accommodations for your disability or lack of strength. A good instructor can help you to choose a firearm that will work best with your limitations. Remember, this is a perishable skill that you must continue to practice. If someone sees you as a target, you will have no option but to use greater force to protect yourself. You can still be prepared regardless of a chronic illness or disability. Of course, the list above is not comprehensive and will not be applicable in all situations, but the key is to improve your chances in every way possible. Regardless of your condition, you can still be a benefit to your family or preparedness group. You have to think ahead and figure out how to work around your limitations, but if you are tough enough to survive a chronic illness or a disability, you've got this. If you're dealing with health and mobility issues, what are some preparations that you have put in place to accommodate for your limitations? Please share your ideas in the comments below. So, there are comments down there that you'll want to go check out, and uh, you know, maybe some helpful things that people have shared. All right, so good article there, and uh, some links, and uh, again, the comments over at theorganicprepper.ca. All right. Our last article comes to us from PreparednessAdvice.com, and it's uh, entitled "Are Your Local First Responders Ready for an EMP?" And really, it's an EMP, CME, or even just a grid-down situation uh, would apply. And with all the cyber attacks and cyber, you know, cyber things that are going on, uh, you know, that's not really too far, uh, too far-fetched of a of a possibility, you know. So let's go ahead and read this one. Uh, Are your local first responders ready for an EMP? On April 21, 2016, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee discussed an issue that many state and local governments aren't addressing, the possibility of a widespread grid power outage that would cause people to be out of electricity for long amounts of time. According to an article in SE Magazine, the chairman of the committee, Representative Lou Barletta, Republican out of Pennsylvania, told members that they need to start helping states and local governments prepare for such an event. During the same meeting, Craig Fugate, the administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, said his agency was working with the Department of Energy to develop federal plans to respond to long-term power outages. Part of this operational plan, he said, would address national safety threats caused by long-lasting electrical power outages. I just, if you could see my eyes roll on that one, I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, Sorry. Anyway, while congressional committee meetings on this subject demonstrate that federal authorities are starting to think about such a disaster, not enough discussion is happening at the state and local levels. As a former Los Angeles deputy sheriff still involved in the law enforcement community in California, I have posed a scenario of a national grid-down event to dozens of police officers and firefighters in the western United States. I've asked if agencies have any kind of plan to deal with the civil unrest of extended power outages either statewide or nationwide. The answer I get is often a quizzical expression and a resounding no. The next question I ask is whether or not this subject is even being discussed. Again, the answer is no. There have been numerous books and articles written about the aftermath of a grid, out, grid outage and the chaos that would ensue in every community. One of the best known is One Second After, a book that has propelled thousands of everyday Americans to prep. Even Ben Carson, during his bid for the presidential nomination, talked about how unprepared our nation is if the electrical grid was brought down for an extended period of time. He noted that, as a nation, we should be doing more to safeguard our electrical grid. However, none of the current articles, books, or any of the congressional reports dealing with the aftermath of such an event mentions the role of local police or fire departments it is assumed and taken for granted that police and fire would be able to respond to emergencies. Agencies must keep in mind that during such a disaster, gas pumps would not work, leaving many firefighters and police officers stranded and unable to report for duty. In Southern California, for example, most police and firefighters live more than 50 miles away from their duty stations, and many of the deputies I worked with live more than 70 miles away from the station. So why aren't police and fire departments doing more to train for this event? Why aren't they having discussions about the implications of a grid-down scenario and how their response would have to be modified? While many public safety professionals are aware of such a scenario and the dire consequences it would have on a community, why are these conversations not happening? If such a disaster did happen, police and fire departments would remain the primary responders. Federal agencies like FEMA would likely be just as paralyzed as the general population and local first responders agencies. No phones, vehicles, or aircraft would be working during widespread power outages, especially if it's nationwide. Even in the best circumstances, FEMA wouldn't be able to move resources or respond to every community all at once. FEMA simply does not have the resources to assist small or large cities on a national scale. Therefore, every community, neighborhood, and home would be largely on its own and forced to be self-sufficient until order is restored. How First Responders Can Become Ready for EMP Police and fire departments are doing their community a disservice by not involving or not including this scenario in their disaster planning process. It's not just an EMP that could take the power grid down, but also sabotage cybersecurity or a solar event known as a coronal mass ejection. I have a suggestion that I hope police and fire agencies will resurrect and reconsider. More than 30 years ago when I was a deputy, my sergeant told us in a briefing that in an emergency or disaster, we should report to the nearest sheriff or police station. However, in a grid-down situation, that may not happen because police and firefighters may not leave their families alone. Police and fire departments should consider taking a page out of oil refinery maintenance workers' playbook after reporting for duty during a disaster. In an emergency, maintenance personnel have to work around the clock to get the oil refinery back in production and repair all the damage to the refinery, which could take a week or more. During that time, the maintenance workers must stay at the refinery and cannot go home to be with their families. To avoid maintenance workers being worried about their relative safety, family members go to a pre-assigned location where food, water, communications, and other resources needed to weather the, the disaster are in place for the group. The oil company takes care of the maintenance workers' families because they value the job the maintenance workers do in getting the refinery up and running again. This is true of other critical industries such as banking. Large banks have plans in place for this type of scenario, including off-site structures that allow the families of critical employees to purchase low-cost groceries and fuel. First responders should stop and think if their fire or police department has made such plans for their families. In order to keep personnel on the job if the grid goes down, station commanders must consider ways to keep officers' families safe and taken care of, too. It's time for police and fire to have a plan or at least start talking, about what to do to maintain a semblance of order during a widespread national power outage. There's a couple of articles there if you want to read uh, other articles there. Uh, Two responses. One is, uh, I guess he's a fireman. He says, My fire truck uses 13 gallons of diesel per 24-hour shift on a slow day, same as most of the rigs in our department. Grid goes down. We are all dead in the water within 36 hours. Um, Anyway, so... uh, you know, you have that issue as well. I know other departments have uh, probably bigger uh, supplies uh, of diesel than that, uh, possibly. But uh, you know, that's a that's a, a good concept. Well, first of all, a uh, good idea to have the conversations, and the fact that he brought it up, and other you know others are just like, no, we're not talking about it. No, we don't have any plans to talk about it. Um, you know, that's not even on our radar. And, uh, but then, the, you know, the idea of taking care of the family is the thing is, how long would that go, right? You know, how long, uh, would they have supplies for and, and those kinds of things. Uh, but a good concept and a good article, and, and another reason why we should be prepared, right? Because, uh, something like this happens. I mean, I think about, uh, in a city like Houston, right? Uh, I live out in the suburbs, so the Houston city limits, the police officers don't even come out here. We have Harris County Sheriff. And uh, the Harris County Sheriff's, I mean, they're, very, they're spread very, very thin. Uh, so, you know, there's, a, you know, they, they cover a wide range out here in the suburbs. So you think about, you know, what they're covering. We do have volunteer fire departments uh, uh, all over the place. So that is uh, helpful and beneficial, um, you know, to, to know that. But again, you know, how long can they operate on uh, the diesel that they have? I know like the volunteer fire trucks or stations, um that we have the ones that are around uh, where i live i mean i don't see any like uh storage tanks or anything like that for diesel so it's pretty much what they have in in uh in their trucks but anyway more uh more uh, advice and things to consider there um you know we recently read i think friday was that uh dealing with a fire or a firefight you know how would you deal with the fire when the when the poop is hit the the fan and uh, you can't just call the fire uh you know the fire department to come out and uh, so you might want to go check that one out if you didn't uh, listen to that podcast episode 115 uh, this last friday all right well um that's it for episode 118 appreciate uh, the fact that you're hanging in there with me and listening to all these uh all these articles, if, uh, if you will if you would go visit the um, you know these these websites, I mean all these websites have given me permission to read their articles. Uh, I, I just don't you know pick up an article and start reading it. Um, you know, I've asked for permission and, and they've all been so gracious to allow me to read these and to provide this for you. If you do find yourself going to one of their uh, websites uh, because of the links and videos and different things like that, I mean, there's always that that you want to do uh, and go check out. But if you find yourself going to one of them and you do like leave something in the comment section, hey, let them know that you heard it on the Prepper Website podcast. Um, that's just a little benefit to them, and, and they know. I mean, uh, that um, you know that I'm that I'm out there linking. I mean, they see the links when I link from the from the website. Uh, they get a ping back, but if if they have uh, if they have that enabled, but uh, it's still it's still good if you would uh, you know let them know that every once in a while if you if you hit a uh, their website. So um, anyway, if you get a chance, come by the website, drop me a comment uh, in the comment section, or uh, appreciate it when you share out our our uh, podcast with your social media or even even with uh, you know word of mouth, letting people know. I mean that's that's speaks volumes, right? So really appreciate that and appreciate the iTunes reviews. If you can get over there, if you find value in the podcast, if you you listen on iTunes, if you can give us a review on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, That always helps out to to promote the podcast. All right. Well, uh, with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until next time, stay prepped and aware. Peace.